Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. James Schwartz will discuss from Darwin to DNA. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, 2009 marks the 150th anniversary of the publication of Darwin's seminal work on the origin of species. However, Darwin's work was only just the beginning of a long and sometimes contentious pursuit of the concept of the gene. But few are aware of this amazing history. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. James Schwartz. Mr. Schwartz is a scholar and writer whose new book, In Pursuit of the Gene, From Darwin to DNA, discusses this remarkable history on the development of genetics for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Schwartz, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me, Charles. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I, I think this is really a very fascinating book. A look at uh, the history of the development of the concept of the gene. Uh, how did you become interested in actually writing this book? Well, I had been writing about genes in human behavior, the extent to which things like altruism and aggression and sexual preference are hardwired into us and the extent to which we're free to make our own choices. Both sides of this debate between evolutionary psychologists and its opponents were always appealing to Darwin, invoking Darwin to support their positions. And I thought it was time for me to see what Darwin might have to say about the role of genes and inheritance. And this led me to read Darwin's origin of species first, but then his later work in which his theory of pangenesis and got into the, his circle and his interactions with his cousin, who was named Francis Galton, who played a big role in this development of this theory, then ended up following the evolution of this idea right up to the discovery of DNA. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned uh, Darwin's theory of pangenesis, which actually was something of a step backwards as far as the concept of a gene and genetic inheritance. It was, in a way, a step backwards from Mendel, who was contemporaneous with Darwin, but no one knew what Mendel was doing. Mendel sort of miraculously got it all right, but he was totally ignored. But it was Darwin who was well-known, and Darwin's ideas, which were gained currency and, and people saw. So it was a step back in a way, but pangenesis gave rise to, he, he was talking about a particulate theory of inheritance and the particles became called pangenes, and they were later shortened to genes, the idea. So they really are the, at least the conceptual forerunners of the modern gene. Well, what was the full concept of his theory of pangenesis? It is a sort of strange theory, really, in a, in a way. He proposed it nine years, first of all, after writing The Origin, and the idea was that each shell of the body gave off a particle, which he called a gemmel. And these gemmels were circulating through the body, and then they, ultimately they found their way to the sex cells where they were assembled into sperm and eggs. The key point was that cells which were altered in the, in the course of living would give off altered gemmels. And, um, for example, nerve cells that were made smarter by hard studying 
of the parent would produce modified gemmules and the child would inherit superior nerve cells. Or Darwin even, remarkably enough, believed that if parents were scarred, if their tissues were scarred, the scarred tissue would give off a modified gemmule and the children could inherit their parents' scars. So, I mean, he was all motivated. He was motivated to do this because he wanted the experiences of each generation to, to contribute to the variation of the next generation. That's sort of the, the basics of his pangenesis theory. Now, his cousin, Francis Galton, challenges. He did not want to believe that the things that happened to you in your life could affect your germ cells. And, of course, he was right. And in that sense, Darwin's theory was a throwback, no wrong, in its what's called Lamarckian sense that experience can affect the germ cells. Uh, it's really fascinating because usually in biology you're taught that the Darwin idea was pretty much the antithesis of the Lamarckian idea that experience would be passed down to the successive generations. Well, it's true. I mean, this is this is a very interesting and quirky part of the history that when Darwin wrote The Origin of, of Species, he was virulently anti-Lamarckian, anti this idea. He called it Lamarck nonsense, the idea that, that the germ cells could be changed by experience. But it, it led to a problem. Uh, he realized soon after publishing the, the theory of natural selection, evolution by natural selection, that that, that theory had a problem, uh, namely that it depended on there being a, a huge amount of variety, of a very variation among organisms, small small variations of organisms. That's how natural selection works. It, it selects the most fit from among a huge variety of variants. If, as Darwin believed, inheritance was a matter of an averaging process, if, you know, if tall parents marrying, if a tall father married a short woman and they had average-sized children, in, in no time at all, you would lose all the variation in the population. And uh, this was a, really a, a catastrophe for his theory of natural selection. This was pointed out to him shortly after writing The Origin, and he took the point very much to heart, and this is why he came up with this theory of pangenesis, which became sort of critical to save, it was actually critical for him to save his theory of natural selection. So Galton, his, who was his first cousin, he, as I said, he, he really wouldn't have anything to do with Darwin's theory of pangenesis. So he started doing his own experiments on inheritance, which showed that, for example, he, he started to use sweet peas, and he measured the size of sweet peas of a plant, and then he um, measured the size of the progeny peas uh, from, the, from the progeny plant. And he showed that plants that had large peas tended to have progeny plants that gave rise to large peas, but not as large. And likewise, plants that had small peas gave rise to progeny that made small peas, but not as small. And so this was a reversion to the mean. Galton noticed this, and it seemed to him then that this, that this was a principle, reversion to the mean. There was a real principle here, and but he interpreted it to mean, wrongly interpreted it to mean, natural selection couldn't do anything because every if, if a good variant arose, it would revert to the mean. I mean, Darwin's cousin, Galton, rejected the idea of natural selection and he uh, of small differences among organisms, the, the, the sort of the crux of the matter as far as Darwin was concerned, but Galton thought it wasn't possible because of this reversion to the mean. And this led Galton to down a, a sort of a false path in a way to become a supporter of, instead of small differences, you know, large variations that could somehow avoid, and he believed that they magically would avoid being reverted to the mean.
So simply by the weight of their large variation, that, that would carry them through. Yeah, there was something just somehow intrinsically and different, fundamentally different about a large variation in Galton's opinion than a small one. Very anti-Darwinian, but it turns out that Darwin was right, really, that the creation of new species and evolution itself is really largely a process of selection of small differences and that, and that Galton had run off on a wrong tangent, more or less. Uh, it was perhaps his over-reliance on the mathematics and statistics of it, really. Yeah. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, he was in love with mathematics. From from the size of garden peas, he moved on to, to the size of people, to height. Mm-hmm. He looked at that as, as a trait, which was inherited. And, that, of course, that's sort of distributed like heights are distributed in a population like a bell curve, which was then a new concept, relatively new idea, the bell curve. And his reversion to the mean was actually, uh, he characterized it as uh, it became what's now known as regression. So Galton is the inventor of regression. And so his intoxication with math and his love of math, it really led to great results in terms of statistics. I mean, because regression and the sister concept or the larger concepts is just sort of correlation between sets. They're both Galton's concepts. And so he, he made these fundamental and huge contributions to statistics, but his biology was wrong actually. So it's ironic in a way. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that Mendel had the whole idea right, but was ignored. Why was this the case? Well, because he had the whole... Mendel first started experimenting with garden teas. He used actually common garden teas. And in 1858, he started to do his first experiments. And he was really so far ahead of his time that none of his contemporaries understood his work. Even he himself realized that he was ahead of his time. He lived in a monastery. He was a monk, even though this was really a matter of convenience because this was the only way that he could find support so that he could devote himself to his science. But he used to wander around the monastery and say that he sort of mutter to himself that his time would come. This is a story which, you know, may or may not be true, but it is told by someone who wrote about this shortly after Mendel's death. And so his contemporaries didn't understand it. He sent his work, you know, in which he had laid out the idea that there were discrete particles, genes, and that each one, there were two copies of a gene in each cell. He had sent this to one of the leading plant physiologists of his day, who was named Carl van Nageli. But Nageli was a huge snob, and he thought that Mendel, being a monk and a high school teacher, which was how he, which was his job in the monastery, really couldn't have much to say of value. And so he entirely failed to appreciate the beauty of Mendel's model. And, and, and Nageli was ought to have gotten it, and, and no one else did. And really, what had to happen was there was a lot of research done on cell biology. You know, they first had to understand in the 1860s that it was actually the nucleus that contained the hereditary material. They didn't really realize that until the 1860s. And in the 1870s, they saw that there were these particles within the nucleus, which were the chromosomes. And in the 1880s, that these really were unique uh, well, they began to see that the chromosomes, well, first of all, came in matched pairs and divided. It became possible to see that they divided in the course of cell growth. And then uh, eventually it was clear that they divided in the course of cell division and that they behaved and, and, and gave rise when they made sex cells. One of each matched pair went to 
each sex cell. So these behaved exactly the way that Mendel had said his particles should behave. So by around the early 1900s, there was all of this support, this sort of background that, that had been filled in, and, and people were finally ready to understand Mendel. And, and, it, and suddenly in 1900, you know, um, the three people basically got it, or, or, and people started around 1900, a lot of people started to understand it. But it had taken four decades of intensive investigation of cell biology, the cell, the nucleus, and the nucleus's contents to make this possible. And it was sort of simultaneously rediscovered by uh, several people. It was, and it's a tortured history how that happened. I mean, I think it is significant that there were several people at once who came to the same conclusion. And whether or not one of them, who was Carl Korens, accused another of them named Hugo de Vries of being a fraud because he thought that Hugo de Vries had claimed to have made the discovery without having read Mendel's paper, just come to it on his own. And in fact, Hugo de Vries published a paper in which he didn't credit Mendel. But at the same time as he published that paper, he published two other papers in which he fully credited Mendel. In fact, he said that it was beautiful work and long forgotten. So Carenz was sort of off base, more or less accusing him of being a plagiarist. And he was very high and mighty about it. It's an incredible story. And only recently, I mean, uh, in the last 10 years, it became clear that someone found in Corenz's lab book that he himself had read uh, Mendel before before rediscovering, before publishing Mendel about about Mendel's paper that he thought he claimed that he originally claimed that he had, you know, come to it on his own, but it turned out that four years earlier he had actually read Mendel's paper, so he wasn't exactly uh, free of guilt in this respect either. <laughs> well, you mentioned Hugo de Vries, and he uh, did quite a lot of work on plants heredity, and he led him down the wrong path into kind of a Lamarckian idea because of the types of plants that he was working with. Yeah, I mean, it, it was working with Anacera Lamarckiana, actually, ironically, which is evening primrose is another name for it. It's this beautiful flowering plant, gorgeous, large flowers that open up in the evening, and they're very spectacular. And it's ironic that this was the plant that led him to his wrong theory, because Lamarck, of course, was famous, another famous uh, scientist who'd been led down a, a, a false path. But what he saw when he was out walking in the 1880s in, in a field, he was Dutch, and it was near... Um, on the coast of the Netherlands, and he came across a garden, and he, it was a proliferating Anathera primrose, and it just it jumped over the garden wall, and then it took over a potato field, and he, he was fascinated by this, because he thought, my God, this is, he, he believed that this was, when plants were growing this way, that all sorts of wondrous things would happen, that vigorously growing plants, in particular, would mutate a lot. So he looked carefully, and he saw that there were little sections of this field of Anathera where it seemed like an entirely new plant had grown up. And he thought that a, a mutation, one plant had undergone a mutation or and given rise to a little colony of mutant plants. And he thought in, in a single mutation that a new species had arisen. So in that sense, he was really off. It's not so much Lamarckian, but he was, he was a, a huge proponent of this sudden, sometimes called sports, or sudden, vastly affecting mutations that could give rise to new species. Very anti-Darwinian. But it actually, as we discussed earlier, it's it, an idea that was pretty dear to Galton's heart. Except for uh, a fellow named uh, Herman Mueller, that he pointed out that the way that these were inherited was because of a lethal combination of genes. Yes. I mean, this was a really puzzling thing. A big deal when DeVries published his theory, of his, his, his so-called mutation theory, it's two huge volumes. It was a, and and, and it was, he was hugely popular. He toured the United States. He, he spoke all over the country in Chicago and all the way in the West Coast, and he was everyone's hero. 
and he was an inspirational figure. And people thought, well, it, it was sort of Darwin was being eclipsed a little bit by not a little bit, but majorly eclipsed. And and many people were thinking that this was really the mechanism for evolution. And De Vries himself was convinced that he was the new Darwin. It was very puzzling what was going on. And it was this guy Herman Muller who was a young graduate student um, at Columbia in the in the famous fly room and who was steeped in and a, a really diehard believer in Mendelism, you know, and correctly so. And he ended up in around 1918 uh, pointing out the way that Mendelian explanation for these strange mutants that seem to defy common sense and all Mendelian laws. And as you said, it, it did have to do with what's called bounce lethals. And it's a little bit hard to talk about, I mean, to, to, to make the idea come clear, but it was a beautiful idea that Muller came up with to explain De Vries's results. And of course, it was devastating to De Vries. He just sort of never could never accept that he wasn't going to be the new Darwin and that evolution didn't work this way by these macro mutations. Uh, well, it is interesting as the the conflicts and the personalities and sort of the little politics that went on behind it. You mentioned the famous fly room, which was uh, headed by Thomas Hunt Morgan. And there were a number of people who worked in that particular lab, but they all vied for a credit for the discoveries that came out of there. Yeah, there was a huge amount of conflict in this lab run by Morgan. It's true. Morgan was the head of the fly lab, and he he had, I mean, out of this fly lab, you know, before we emphasize the conflict, I mean, you have, it's important to say that this this is where the ideas of Mendel and the ideas about chromosomes sort of were reconciled, and they really came up with the modern synthesis, which is chromosome theory of heredity, the right idea that, and it was between the years of 1912 and 1915, and, and so Morgan ran this lab, and he ran it very democratically, which to his credit. And there were three very talented students named Sturdivant, Alfred Sturdivant, Calvin Bridges was another, and then this guy Herman Muller. And the, the source of conflict was that Muller was a brilliant, they were all very smart, but Muller was truly brilliant. He was arguably the, the, the greatest geneticist of the 20th century. Jim Watson thinks he wasn't, and I certainly think he was. Um, it, he had all of these ideas. I mean, he was a, just a sort of an idea machine. He was, you know, he was very, very quick. But the um, unwritten law of the fly room was that if you did the experiment, you got the credit for the result. So... They would turn out based on Muller's ideas, you know, like, for example, this one about to show that that the Reese's mutations were based on these bounce lethals, that kind of idea, very clever ideas. They would publish papers, Sturdivant and Bridges and also Morgan, and not credit Muller for his contribution, which was the idea. They were basically just the hands in many cases. I mean, not always, but this was more very often the case. And this led to great resentment. And really, it was a, an example of sort of glaring example of injustice in science, I think, and, and little appreciated, really. One of the reasons I wrote the book, mm. to try to set out the real facts as I saw them of the, of the fly room. Mm. And Muller, in your view, is really the big unsung hero of genetics in the early 20th century. He really, in my view, is. I mean, a, a lot of people uh, take me to task for this because it's really, Muller was also a very flamboyant, I mean, very, yeah, he was flamboyant and very grandiose character. And he ended up leaving the United States in the 30s and going to the Soviet Union uh, out of the conviction that communism was more just and the better way to be. And therefore, he left Sturdivant, Bridges, and Morgan had their way, really, with the next generation of students, teaching them that it was their 
work in eliminating him. I mean, they tried to totally eliminate him from, I mean, Sturdivant wrote an obituary for Morgan in the 1950s when Morgan died, or 1940s, and in it he said that he described the fly room and he literally left Muller out of the fly room, even though Muller was the third member of the fly room and had a desk. He left him off the list of people who had desks and sort of added as a sort of afterthought that, of course, Herman Muller was contributed greatly to the work that went on. But he was sort of unconsciously trying to expunge him from the reality. I mean, it was really quite a troubled situation there. Mm. Well, so what is sort of the legacy of the work that came out of that room and uh, Herman Muller's in, in particular? The legacy, well, I mean, the, the thing is that they, they invented the, the chromosome theory of heredity, which is the theory that we all live by now. But in particular, Muller, who was, they were making gene maps, you know, putting genes in orders, in order on, on chromosomes in a line and saying how far they were between each gene. Now, of course, that's hugely important now and, and sort of led fairly directly to sequencing the genomes, the human genome. And Muller, and also there were some cases, uh, and, uh, and another big legacy of this work is that while Morgan and Sturdivant and, and Bridges were making these gene maps, they wouldn't let Muller work on this. And Muller's best friend, who was Altenberg, was also in the fly room. And they really were looking for something to do. So there were some cases, some strange mutants that didn't seem to behave like proper Mendelian mutants. And these strange non-conforming cases turned out to be hugely significant. They, they were examples of what are called complex traits. And now, I mean, it's all the energy of the uh, Genome Project has been, been directed toward understanding complex diseases like diabetes. These are diseases that are not caused by a single gene, but by a, a slew of genes, probably. And macular degeneration is also and then another example of a complex disease. And based on Muller's work from that period, he presented a method whereby you could find the genes that were influencing these complex traits, even schizophrenia. So, I mean, the, the legacy, the, the direct legacy of Muller, I, I think, is really to have provided uh, the understanding and, and really a method by which, remarkably, 80 years later, you know, the, the Human Genome Project is pursuing his, the Muller method. And, and coming up with fantastic findings, really. Hmm. It looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some final words on the whole history of from Darwin to DNA. Well, I am a big believer in the fact that I, I'm really fairly convinced by by my my research that scientists' prejudices and passions influence the nature and the direction of their findings more than is commonly acknowledged. And I think that's one lesson I, I, I think that it's sort of in bold relief in this story of the development of the ideas of the gene. But it's also just a, a wonderful story, it, you know, the the unraveling of this mystery, which was really happened fairly late. You know, it started around 1860, and it, it, it was all becoming clear in the early 1900s. So it, was, it happened late in history, and it's a, it is a, you know, a really compelling story. That's all I'd like to leave you with. Okay. Well, it really is indeed a compelling story, and it is detailed in your very fascinating book, which is called In Pursuit of the Gene, From Darwin to DNA. Uh, Mr. Schwartz, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And you were just listening to Mr. James Schwartz discussing From Darwin to DNA. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. Yeah, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. 
All right, here we go. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic highly evolved or still evolving. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're highly evolved or still evolving and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Schwartz, you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, highly evolved or still evolving, Brett Favre. <laughs> I have to pass on that. I, I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not really familiar with with him. Okay. <laughs> uh, number two is uh, Mr. Environmentalism himself, Al Gore. I would have to say still evolving. <laughs> Although you know, I'm a great fan of of Al Gore's, and I think that his thinking has really been very important in bringing the awareness of global warming to 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 the world. Well, let's just leave it at that. I think he's still evolving. Person number three, it's uh, the famed biologist Richard Dawkins. Well, I'd say still evolving, too. I mean, from my point of view, Richard Dawkins is, you know, a brilliant and and remarkably articulate proponent of a certain point of view, the selfish gene theory. But, you know, I I think that the situation is probably more complex and that when he takes into account the more recent findings of the uh, genome project, he will evolve his theory more. So I just would say he's still evolving. Okay. Person number four, how do you evolve, still evolving? Uh, talk show host, Jerry Springer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, geez, I'm not going to say fully evolved there either, although I think he's hysterically funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, finally, number five, the president of the United States, Barack Obama. All right. I mean, I have to put someone as fully evolved. I would say that he's way ahead of his time in an almost centillion way. <laughs> okay. But I hope that uh, I'm afraid that he may be too far ahead of his time. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully he can be appreciated in his time. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. All right. Well, Mr. Schwartz, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game. And, of course, again, talking about your book, which is called In Pursuit of the Gene, From Darwin to DNA. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was our pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>